Go ahead and find Judges 16. Be the first place we look. Judges 16. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. We've got three questions we want to get through. Let's just jump into it. Question number one. Was Delilah at the party when Samson pushed down the pillars? Um, this is the question that actually came from our uh, children's Bible classes. Uh, Jenny uh, passed it along, and I thought it was just a pretty good one for Q&A night. So we'll just think about that. So uh, to uh, remind ourselves who Samson was, what's happening here, Samson was one of the judges of Israel. He was a man who through the Spirit of the Lord was given great strength with the intention that he used that strength to weaken Philistia's grip on Israel. Um, but of course, for most of his life, where it really counted, Samson was quite a weak man. That's the irony of his life. Um, he's strong in, his, uh, in, in, uh, in muscles, um, but he's weak against lust. He's weak against anger. He's weak against pride. And all those weaknesses come into play in chapter 16, where, where he takes up with the Philistine woman named Delilah, and Samson, we see, is stronger than any Philistine man, but he is weaker than one Philistine woman. Well, when the Philistines catch wind of Samson's fling with Delilah, they, they offer her money to crack the code of Samson's strength. He's been a, a thorn in Philistia's side for quite a while. They're going to use her to get to him. And Delilah agrees. After several tries, she uh, finally sweet talks and guilt trips her way into the secret, which is cutting his hair. Although, side note, um, I'm not so sure that the hair was ever really the secret to his strength. Um, I think it's sort of coincidental because the real source of Samson's strength in the story is always the spirit of the Lord. And his strength left him when the spirit of the Lord left him. And I think the cutting of his hair is really the symbolic catalyst for, for the spirit leaving him uh, because the cutting of his hair represents a total desecration of his Nazarite vow which involved not cutting one's hair, and is really the decisive act of apostasy, which his whole life up to that point had been, had been leading up to. Well, the blind and weakened Samson becomes a, a mascot for Philistia. Um, they gather for a great banquet. They blasphemously credit their capture of Samson to the god Dagon. And this, the irony is they should be crediting Israel's god for the capture of Samson because it was Israel's god who allowed them capture Samson. So this is Judges 16, verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. The blind and, and humiliated Samson is then brought into the party, which is likely taking place in the temple to this god. That they're, praise, uh, that they're praising. Uh, it's filled with 3,000 people, including all the lords of the Philistines. Verse 25, when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. He entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And so he stands there between two pillars in the pagan temple. He's being mocked and spat upon. And in verse 28, Samson prays for the second time, the second time in his story. This is verse 28. 
Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So the question is, was Delilah among the 3,000 mentioned in verse 27? Is Delilah one of those? The short answer is, we don't know. It doesn't say. The last we heard from Delilah was back in verse 20, when she's play-acting surprise when the men come to arrest the newly shaved and weakened Samson, and she's acting scandalized. Oh, no, I didn't see this coming, when, of course, it was all her doing. So, we don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if she was there, I would say. It wouldn't surprise me if she was mocking Samson alongside all the other Philistine revelers. Um, I detect no pang of conscience in Delilah's action at any point. Um, She is altogether manipulative and deceitful in her part of the conspiracy to capture Samson. In verse 19, when he's lying there bound and unable to break out, verse 19 says she began to torment him. So the weak Samson is an object of her derision first before everyone else. And so I think it's not a stretch to say that a woman like that could be a part of a party throne in order to further torment and taunt Samson and maybe even brought out and honored as everyone's celebrating the capture of this enemy of Philistia. And here is the woman who's really responsible for capturing him. Um, I think there would definitely be some poetic justice for Delilah to be among those Philistines who perished at the party. But again, we just don't. We just don't know. It's a good question, one I'm not sure I quite thought about before. Was Delilah at the party when Samson pushed down the pillars? Short answer, I don't know. Number two. Please explain the parable in Mark 2, 18 through 22. That's the one we're going to look at. There's parallel versions, Matthew 9, Luke 5. Just for simplicity, we'll stick with Mark's account. Let's just begin by reading it, and uh, we'll discuss what's going on here. Mark 2 and verse 18. Mark 2 and verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So, Let's talk about what's going on here. First thing to do is to see where we are in the story of Jesus. That's helpful to unlocking uh, meaning. Um, So this is early on in in Jesus' ministry. We know that from it just being very close to the beginning of the book. 
He has just called, for example, Matthew or Levi to be his disciple in verse 14 of the chapter. Jesus has just burst on the scene, working great signs. And one of the things happening is people are trying to figure out what to do with this guy because a lot of what he does is sometimes scandalous and sometimes people suspect even even worse than that. So, for example, just in chapter 2, restricting ourselves to the events of chapter 2, he has already pronounced forgiveness of, of people for their sins, which if he's not God is blasphemous, and if he is God, then that's a pretty big revelation too. So he's, he's pronouncing the forgiveness of sin. He's eating with tax collectors, which is a scandalous thing to do. He's breaking Sabbath customs of the Pharisees. And in verse 18, along those lines, his teaching on fasting is a departure from typical tradition. It's a departure from Pharisee tradition, and it's a departure from the practice of John the Baptist's disciples. And people are puzzled by that. What's going on? Why don't your disciples practice fasting in the same way these other these other groups do. Well, maybe we need to begin by just briefly summarizing fasting in the Bible and fasting as it was practiced in that day. So in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, um, as far as I can tell, there, there is only one day of the year when fasting seemed to be mandatory for Israel, and that was the Day of Atonement. Um, that was a day of mourning and repentance for the nation's sin. That's the only formal day I can find where the law of Moses said you should abstain from food uh, for some amount of time on this day. Almost every other mention of fasting in the Old Testament seems to be spontaneous, um, a spontaneous response to grief or a time of spiritual intensity when we dedicate our minds to God's law, when we are so intent on God, um, focused on Him, that we can't even bother to eat. Um, There is also a mention in Zechariah 7 where the people had developed extra traditions of fasting during the 5th and 7th months, but the point of Zechariah 7 is the prophet is mocking them for this extra practice. So the Old Testament portrays fasting largely as an individual endeavor to be undertaken under, under certain circumstances. Well, verse 18 references the practice of fasting as, as it was taught by the Pharisees, first of all. So it was customary for the Pharisees to fast every Monday and Thursday. Each week, Monday and Thursday, typically the Pharisees would fast, and they taught their disciples to fast. So do you remember the self-righteous Pharisee praying in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he says, Lord, I fast twice a week. That's a reference to that practice, when they fast on Monday and Thursday. So that's the sort of thing I think verse 18 is referring to, that teaching of the Pharisees. Verse 18 also mentions the practice of John the, John the Baptist's disciples, that they fasted. Um, this one we know much less about. I don't know exactly everything John the Baptist said. It does fit with sort of the personality of John the Baptist, which is a very kind of ascetic sort of thing. John himself was, was not a feasting kind of guy. Um, and, and most think something like this. This must be how John the Baptist's message on fasting went that since John the Baptist's message was always one of repentance, of grieving of your sin, repenting of your sin, preparing for the coming of the Messiah by dealing with our sin, that fasting really fits into that picture of preparation and repentance and spiritual intensity, that it's a part of their preparation for the Messiah he is preaching, to fast and prepare ourselves that way. So that's the background. The question on everyone's mind in verse 18 is why Jesus' disciples don't maintain any sort of regular collective practice of fasting like the Pharisees taught or like John the Baptist's disciples practiced. 
So Jesus' first answer in verse 19 is to tell a story. I'm not sure whether exactly to call it a parable. That's a weird category that I don't have hard and fast rules for. We could call it a parable. We could call it a metaphor. Let's just read it. Verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. So, simple question. Do wedding guests fast at a wedding banquet when it's in full swing? Is that an appropriate time to fast? And we all know the answer. The same would be true for weddings today. That's not a fasting occasion. Weddings were a big deal in the ancient world. I dare say even bigger than in our day. Um, No expense was spared. The feast could last for days. Uh, It might be one of the few occasions each year when when a common person would be able to eat meat. That was not a regular part of the diet, because uh, mainly for cost. But it was a day on which people feasted. The point he's making is weddings are a joyous occasion, and they call for a feast. When the bridegroom is present, it means the feast is in full swing. Jesus says in verse 20, when the bridegroom leaves, when the wedding is over, and when you get that sort of feeling of melancholy after a wedding, do you sort of feel that way after the wedding's over? There's sort of like a a lull. It's a little bit, you get a bit nostalgic and sad. When the feast is over, now perhaps fasting might be appropriate. Now the feast is over. Now it's time to stop eating. So that's his, uh, his common sense analogy. Now, who are, who are we meant to see as a bridegroom, if we are to push the parable a little further? Who are we perhaps to see as the bridegroom? The one who, when they are present, it's inappropriate to abstain. It's inappropriate to fast. It's inappropriate to act like we're sad or grieving. I think we are meant to see Jesus as the bridegroom in the analogy. And the bridegroom, at this moment, Jesus is speaking, the bridegroom is here. When Jesus comes to earth as a man to redeem you, And when Jesus, even more so, comes to your house, it is a wonderful day. It is a special day, more special than any wedding you've ever been to. When God's Messiah comes to earth to bring God's kingdom and to assert his rule, it's a great day. And most people got that. Remember, Jesus had the slander thrown at him, which wasn't true, but had a basis in reality. Oh, he's just a drunkard, a wine-bibber, and a glutton. Not that he was those things, but that... When Jesus went to people's house, they ate, and they drank, and they had a good time. So we're meant to see Jesus. When Jesus comes to your house, it's a happy day. But he says in verse 20, when, when, when the bridegroom leaves, when God's Messiah leaves, now all of a sudden the dynamic is different. I believe in that day, verse 20, that day is basically a reference to the time period we live in, in which we are waiting for the bridegroom's promised return again. He's gone now from the earth, and we're waiting for him to return. So the basic point of the story in verses 19 and 20 is this. My disciples don't fast because there's no reason to right now. Now later, verse 20, they will, but verse 19, that's not today. We're in the middle of the wedding feast. Well, Jesus continues with two more sort of metaphors in verse 21. These, I think, are probably where the question is centered on. These are, I think, the most puzzling part of the story. They seem a little odd. How do they fit with what's just been said? But I believe Jesus is just answering the very same question. Why don't your disciples fast, like the Pharisees, like John the Baptist's disciples? And I believe Jesus' answer in these these stories is basically the same, which is 
It's inappropriate. It doesn't fit. A new thing has come which has made obsolete some of the old, old things. He's just using different metaphors. So verse 21. No one, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So, brand new cloth, we know this, brand new cloth will shrink as it is washed for the first few times and, uh, and as it is used. Brand new cloth will shrink. So, if you try to patch a hole on an old shirt where the cloth has already been stretched to its limit, and you put a piece of new unshrunk cloth to patch that hole on the old, you put the new patch on the old garment, what's going to happen over the next few uses and washes? Well, as that new cloth shrinks, it's going to pull out the fibers that are there and it's going to rip them. It's going to make a new and worse tear as the new cloth pulls on the old cloth it's been patched onto. When you put the new thing on the old setting, it doesn't fit. It's inappropriate. It doesn't work. Verse 22, this is much along the same lines. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh, is for fresh wineskins. So in that day, they often stored wine in animal skins. Um, you can read descriptions of this, of, of people skinning a goat in one piece and then carefully sewing it into a watertight bag. Sometimes they would use uh, the intestines or the stomach or something as sort of a, a literal bladder, a bladder for that sort of thing. But just, just imagine that. You've got those animal skins, and it's got filled up with this liquid. But, of course, as, as the grape juice sat there, if you let it sit there, it would ferment. It would begin to ferment. And in the process of fermentation, gas is released, and, of course, that causes more space to be taken up, an expansion in that, in that airtight, watertight bag. So if you're going to store new wine, you'd better have a new wineskin with some stretch to it. Because if you store new wine in an old wineskin, the old wineskin would have already been stretched out. Think of like a tough old piece of leather that keeps getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It doesn't have any stretch left to it. And what's going to happen when you put the new wine in the old wine skin? Well, the skin is going to burst, and then both the skin and the wine are going to be ruined. So, Jesus tells these stories, makes these illustrations, in answer to the question, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answers, because it doesn't fit. Because it doesn't make sense. If my disciples kept the traditions of the Pharisees or continued the practice of John the Baptist's disciples, it would be like that cloth and like that wineskin. Fasting isn't something you do just because. There is a logic to it. There is a rationale to it. And at this moment of history, Jesus is saying, at this moment in history, the logic of John the Baptist's fasting, the logic of the Pharisees' fasting doesn't if I am right in saying John the Baptist's disciples fasted in order to prepare for the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah, if John the Baptist's fasting is a part of, of uh, preparing for the Messiah's arrival, then what reason did Jesus' disciples have to fast, not when we're preparing for his arrival, but when he's already here? What reason do we have to fast now? If the Messiah is here, then the reason John the Baptist's disciples fasted, the reason they fasted is old and obsolete and doesn't fit now. 
It's like the old cloth. It's like the new wineskin, trying to transplant the old practice onto the new thing. Jesus is here to do a new thing. He's here to usher in a new age, the age John the Baptist was preparing for. And so trying to put the old with the new just doesn't work. Just like it doesn't work to fast in the middle of the wedding feast. It just doesn't fit. If the Pharisees fasted as as part of a centuries-old ritual, devoid of meaning, we just fast because it's Monday, that's why we fast, then what reason, what good reason did Jesus' disciples have to fast? Because part of what Jesus has come to do is to do away with that sort of empty, faithless ritual. Trying to transplant the Pharisees' traditions onto Jesus' disciples is like trying to patch an old Pharisee garment with a new piece of cloth. Or trying to put Jesus' new wine in the worn-out Pharisee wineskin. It doesn't work. And so I think all three stories, the wedding, the new cloth, and the new wine, these are all about the same thing. Jesus is saying, my disciples don't fast because it's not appropriate that we fast right now. When the Messiah is here to do God's new thing, it's time for feasting and not for fasting. Trying to blindly transplant the old traditions onto the new thing is not what we're about here. Now, part of the so what, part of the so what for us us is, I think, we do live in an era in which fasting is appropriate. I think that's part of the so what. Because we're in the position described in verse 20. We are waiting for the bridegroom to come again. We are living in a time suffering under many stresses and heartaches where the logical and biblical response may be to abstain from food for a time while we devote ourselves totally to prayer. Jesus himself says when he leaves it will be appropriate for disciples to fast again. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. I've talked about fasting before. I'll refer you to that. We don't have time to get into all that, but I do think that's part of the so what of this. When Jesus was on earth, it wasn't time to do that. It was time to celebrate the arrival, to honor the king who would arrive. But when the king leaves, when the bridegroom leaves, and we long for him to come again, we may fast. Now, when Jesus comes for the second time, won't be appropriate to fast then either. Then the wedding feast, the eschatological banquet will be on. So that's my, uh, that's my best shot at uh, Mark 2. I hope that's satisfactory to the uh, asker of the question. Our third question is much along the same lines. We've just, give, just been given a text and said, Drew, tell, tell me what this means. So Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 is the text. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2. So, Briefly, working our way into Romans 13, what's been happening? How did we get here? Romans 1 through 11, very briefly, is about this. It's about our sin and God's mercy. That's Romans 1 through 11, about our sin and God's mercy. Romans 12 through 16 is about how we are to live in light of God's mercy, in light of the fact that we've received this mercy. Look at Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. This is really the the main idea of the final chapter's Everything else happening in the rest of the book after Romans 12 is an application of these ideas. Romans 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
What he says is the only reasonable response to God's mercy we receive through the gospel is to spend our lives presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We are not conformed to the world's mold. We are transformed into God's mold for human beings. God is the one who has redeemed us, and God is the one who is teaching us how to be human again. And so that's chapter 12. In the rest of chapter 12, Paul talks about the transformation of our relationships with our brethren in the first half of the chapter, and then the transformation of our, of our relationship with our enemies in the second half of Romans 12. Which brings us to Romans 13, when he begins talking about a transformed relationship the Christian has with the state, with the state, beginning with verses 1 and 2. So let's read the question, uh, the verses about the question. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. One thing I think it's important to say that's not said often enough is that Romans 13 is really just sort of a sub-point of the last part of Romans 12. And the common thread, the, the theme that runs through the second half of Romans 12 and into Romans 13, the common theme is the theme of vengeance, vengeance. The second half of Romans 12 is about how it's not the disciples' place to take vengeance into their own hands. It is is a disciple's role to leave it to God. So this is Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we believe God's vengeance against evildoers happens finally and completely on judgment day. That's when vengeance, that's when justice is totally meted out when the evil receive recompense for their evil. But what Romans 13 says is that some of God's vengeance against evildoers happens here and now. We don't always just have to wait for then. That sometimes we have a, 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 a lesser, a sort of a, um, interim, interim uh, uh, justice given. That God has established civil authority as his earthly agent, in order to carry out some degree of justice. And so in verse 4, he calls it an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, of course, the justice of the state is not perfect, and it is not final like God's God's, uh, final judgment day will be. God's justice is the perfect and final version of it, and what the state does is not perfect or final. Of course, it can go awry when authorities God has entrusted to render justice are derelict in their duties. But chapter 13 argues God institutes and uses civil authorities as instruments of justice right here and now. That's what God intends to happen. Again, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll talk through it in uh, phrase by phrase. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, And those who resist will incur judgment. So verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the theme of the paragraph. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul explains more specifically what that looks like in practice and why we should do it in the next few verses, but this is the main point. Be subject. Be in subjection or submit. And just to nail it down, the, the word there, submit or be in subjection, means to accept or yield to the authority of another, 
to, to, to uh, yield to the authority of another. Now, to just put a fine point on that, who does Paul say should be subject to governing authorities? Only the person who likes the governing authorities? Only people who voted for the governing authorities? I remind you, no one voted for Caesar in that day. Only people whose ideologies match up perfect with the governing authorities. How many people? Let every person in verse 1. Now, our next question, and Paul knows this is the next question as much as, as much as we do. It's a more pressing question in that day, frankly, than ours. The next question is, well, why should I? Why should I be subject? What right do they have over me? Good question. Paul's answer, second half of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the first thing he says is, there is no authority except from God. God is the only one in the entire universe who actually has authority, who is sovereign, who has authority in himself. He is the only one of whom that could be said. Every being in the universe is subject to him and will answer to him. God is the only truly sovereign one. There is no authority except from God. You remember what Jesus said to Pilate? When Pilate was acting like he had authority over Jesus, Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate, you are not the big man you think you are. You're middle management is what he's saying. All you have is the authority that's been given to you and by the way, will be taken away one day. What that means is, if someone other than God is going to have legitimate authority, then it must have been given to them by the sovereign God. The only authority anyone can have is the authority that God has given them. The only rightful authority anyone can have. And Paul says that is precisely what has happened in our world. God has granted authority to civil authorities, to the state. And so he says those that exist have been instituted by God. And if that's true, if those authorities have been granted, delegated that authority by God, if that's true, then Paul says, if you resist those civil authorities, then understand you're resisting one whom God has appointed. And then if you resist the one whom God has appointed, who are you really resisting? You're resisting God himself. So verse 2 again, just to nail it down. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So that, what I've tried to do so far is give you the flow of thought. That's what's happening in verses 1 and 2. Now, let me, raise, let me uh, address some of the questions people have, some of the controversial things. So, this passage um, has been used throughout the centuries to justify tyranny and abuse and oppression and war and all sorts of state-sanctioned sin. Uh, one, one commentator puts it this way. These seven verses, talking about Romans 13, 1 through 7, these seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament, which is a pretty strong statement. But many despots have gotten a hold of these verses and said, see, look, it says it there. The fact that I'm in power means I've been appointed by God, which means if you resist my authority, God will judge you. That's exactly, by the way, what leaders of uh, apartheid South Africa said. Uh, they were professing... Christians, and they held up verses like these to justify everything, all the terrible things that they did. But here, here's the thing. What do we say to that? What do we say to the, to the despot who holds up Romans 13 and says, see, God put me here, I can do what I want. Well, 
It's no different than a husband saying, God put me in charge of the household. I've been appointed by God, which means I can beat my wife and I can drink however much I want and I can terrorize my family. It's okay because, look, the Bible, the husband's ahead of the wife. You get the picture? Anyone buying that? These verses do not mean, of course, God approves of the actions of every bloodthirsty tyrant, every genocidal dictator, every crooked and immoral and lying politician, every bribe-taking public official. Clearly, it doesn't mean God's okay with that. These verses do not baptize the sins of civil authorities any more than Ephesians 5 baptizes the sins of an abusive husband. The authorities God appoints are accountable to God for how they use that authority. That's true of husbands, that's true of elders, that's true of civil government. And if those authorities demand God's people, for example, if those authorities demand God's people forsake the real sovereign authority in the universe, God... It is obvious to God's people always whose authority we go by. It is always God's authority we obey first. You remember when Peter is threatened by a governing authority in Israel, Peter is threatened by a governing authority to stop preaching the gospel to which he says, we must obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. Remember, Jesus said, if Caesar asks for his coin back, if Caesar asks for his coin back, give it to him. It's got his picture on it. But if Caesar asks for what belongs to God, If Caesar asks for, say, worship, if Caesar asks for ultimate allegiance, if Caesar asks for exclusive devotion, then you render to God what belongs to God. You just keep giving God what belongs to God. That's something we always do, uninterrupted, no matter what anyone else would ever say. So, with those limitations stated pretty strongly, I believe what these verses say positively is that God, first of all, does want there to be civil government. Civil government, even when it's imperfect, even when it's kind of bad, is still better than anarchy. It's an institution that he appoints and he uses for his purposes. Again, he explains what some of those purposes are in the next few verses. But Christians need to recognize the God-appointed role of the state. God does appoint, God does use civil government. And because Christians know that, we respect civil authority as a rule. If you read the Old Testament, you read about God doing this, not, not just in, in, the, in the New Testament, all over, all over history. And not just with Israel either. Um, he does it with pagan and immoral governments. God is using them. God appoints them and God uses them over and over and over again. Uh, I'll remind you, just earlier in the book of Romans, Paul has used Pharaoh as an example of this sort of thing. In Romans 9 and verse 17, he says, Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God appointed Pharaoh and he had a use for Pharaoh. It obviously doesn't mean Pharaoh was a righteous man who everything he ever did was great and God-pleasing, but God used him. Likewise, God raises up and uses Assyria to judge Israel. And he raises up and uses Babylon to judge Judah and Assyria. And he raises up and he uses Persia to judge Babylon and to liberate God's people. And so on and so on. God does not approve of every last action of these civil authorities. They will stand before him in judgment as much as anyone else. The pharaohs and Caesar will answer to God for their evil. Some of them didn't have to wait very long. They all got judged soon enough by other rival nations. But the fact remains... God appoints and uses civil authority for his purposes. 
what those purposes are might not be obvious to us at the moment. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. When Habakkuk sees how God is raising up Babylon for his purposes, and Habakkuk says, this doesn't make any sense, and God says, yeah, it does, be quiet. We believe that the Most High always rules the kingdom of men. That's what Daniel says over and over again. The Most High always rules the kingdom of men. We believe that God is always sovereign, that God's will is always done, that God's will, God is always in charge. And in light of that belief in God, in light of that belief of the coming day of judgment in which he will dole out justice once and for all, we are subject to civil authority because we believe they have been appointed by God and that God is using them for his purposes. And we'll trust God with the rest and busy ourselves with doing God's will. So I hope that, uh, that clears up that. I'm not always sure if I answer the question to anyone's satisfaction, but what I can promise is I'll do it to the best of my ability. So maybe there's someone here this evening um, that needs to come. We always um, like to offer an invitation before we leave. When thinking about the Bible, we think about spiritual things, obeying God, discipleship. And maybe someone has been convicted by the fact that they have not been, not been serving God the way that they should. If you need to come forward, confess sin, express any kind of spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing.